the simplicity on the other side of complexity. When you're just starting out, you don't really know anything. You just do the basics. You don't really know why you're doing them that way or what the basics even are. You're just sort of copying somebody. And as you learn more, you just add more and more stuff to your whatever. Some point in your career, you end up with this just big, chaotic mess and you just are so confused that I don't know what I'm doing anymore and you start throwing stuff away. That process takes years, right? Decade maybe. And finally, you end up with the stuff that you were doing at the very start. You just now have a depth and breadth of understanding of why you're doing it. And welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, Brad Stolberg. Brad, what's going on, my man? Not so much, Steve. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. Had a nice holiday break. It's great to be back. And particularly uh, with the opportunity to speak to someone who is truly world-class at what they do and filled with really fascinating insights from a remarkable career in coaching. That's right. We get to nerd out today with a fellow track coach, Stu McMillan. Only Stu is the track coaches of track coaches. He's worked with an inordinate amount of Olympians and medalists, particularly in sprinting events, but also in winter Olympic sports. And we're going to nerd out, don't worry, listeners, not just on track but on coaching in general, we promise this is going to be a conversation that you refer back to because Stu brings it. He goes deep on everything coaching related. Even if you're not interested in athletics, you're going to get a lot out of this one. Yeah, I really think it's probably the best interview we've done on the podcast yet. No offense to prior guests. We love you all too. And I'm sure we're biased because we're fascinated by the art and science of excellence in coaching. And this is someone who lives it and not only lives it, but is also a philosopher at heart and really reflective on it. So not too much more of our talking. We want to dive right into the interview real quickly before we do. If you haven't yet, check out our Patreon page, www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation for as little as a latte a month. You get access to our monthly book club, monthly ask me anything, discounts on all of our merch as well as signed copies of our new books when they come out. We've got a new book in the pipeline for later on this year. So sign up for Patreon today, get that book signed the day it comes out, along with all sorts of other great community programming. With that, our conversation with Stu McMillan. Stu, great to see you. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Uh, good, man. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to, to chatting with you guys. Yeah, so, you know, our listeners are tend to be at least people that are really interested in high performance and sustainable excellence from a variety of different fields. We have a handful of elite athletes that listen, but more so we've got entrepreneurs, business people, physicians, attorneys, creatives. It really spans the, the gambit. And um, it would be helpful probably if you could just give folks a sense of your current coaching practice uh, the types of athletes that you currently work with that you've worked with recently, and then also how you got to this level of truly coaching on the world stage. 
Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm currently based in Atlanta. I co-own a company called Altus, and we coach elite sprint athletes and educate uh, coaches in uh, a number of different sports about speed, power, health, and performance. Uh, been been here in, in Atlanta just for a couple of years, but been running Altus for the last sort of nine or ten. I think this is our tenth year in in existence. Um, so prior to that, I was over in the UK working with UK Athletics with some elite sprint, sprinters there. And then prior to that, I was in Canada working in uh, in a number of sports, including sprinting, but also in bobsleigh and skeleton and speed skating. Um, and I started my coaching career sort of in the late 80s, uh, working in soccer and then transitioned into sort of speed power and a number of sort of speed power sports in, in the uh, early 90s. Got the real speed bug um probably for the same reason why many of us get it i wasn't fast myself and i'm trying to figure out how i can get myself faster and spent the, the next sort of decade trying to do that unsuccessfully um but i managed also among you know along that sort of process to talk a few of my friends into sort of training with me they got faster i didn't and that's sort of how my uh, coaching career kind of spawned uh, and I've worked at a number of different sort of groups and, and levels since then, you know, anywhere from sort of under 12s and under 15s up until, you know, the groups that I work with now, which are all sort of elite professional sprinters. Now, just to give our listeners a sense of um, of where you're currently at. So from training your friends to get faster to about, you know, off the top of your head, how many Olympic medalists have you coached? And then let's do ballpark. How many world championship medalists have you coached? Oh, geez. Um, so I, the next Olympic Games will be the 10th that I've coached at. Um, I think I've coached 70-something so far, 74 to 77, somewhere around there. Um, they've won in total about, I think, 36 medals. Um, and world championships, I couldn't even begin to guess. It would be you know well over 100 uh, athletes competing at world championships in a number of different sports, probably winning well over 50 medals. So yeah. So this isn't like your neighborhood high school coach, y'all. This is uh this is someone that's truly doing it at the, the pointiest edge of the field. Uh, one more question before I, I hand it over to Steve on your background. I know that we've talked about this when we went out to dinner in Phoenix, you grew up playing soccer. Is that right? Uh, that was my game. Yep. So that's your athletic background. And did you did you have uh, potential to play like at the I guess what in the states would be the equivalent of the collegiate level, or were you just an okay athlete growing up? No, I was better than that. I mean, I, I played at the collegiate level in in Canada. Okay, and then at a fairly high level uh, in men's soccer in Canada, uh, I was probably not. I was always kind of the, one of the best players on a bad team, or one of the worst players on a really good team. Uh, if I was still in the UK, I've probably been playing sort of low-level professional soccer. I was sort of that level. Not good enough to make a real good living at it, but good enough to sort of stick around for a year or two before I figured out that, yeah, this isn't for me. All right. So let's dive into the the coaching process because I know you have a, a very eclectic background from a sport, but I want to get into kind of your development as as a coach. Let's start with... Can you name a couple of the major mentors you've had um, in your coaching education? Yeah. Um, 
So my dad was a coach. Um, so I think many of us, you know, who grow up in a sort of a sporty or a sporting way uh, can generally sort of point towards parents as the primary mentors, to at least at the beginning, right? So he was a coach. When we first moved to Canada, when I was 12, he became the coaching coordinator of this local soccer club. And he hired me uh, two years later to become a coach of one of the, uh, I think it was the under 11 team. And I was 14. So I started coaching him from a really young age. And because he was a coach, you know, every, every young boy wants to be just like his dad. Right. And that was me. So it's, it's, I took, um, obviously he's a great mentor for me in life. And I was also a mentor for me in coaching. He's kind of gruff. He's kind of rough, you know, he's very direct and to the point. And that's kind of became the type of coach that I was over the course of time. Right. Or at least, at least how I started. Um, you know, and trying to sort of just work my way through it. I think at the at the time, and this was, I mean, guys, you know, late eighties and mid nineties, when we didn't really talk a lot about mentorship. You know, this was this was a new thing, maybe a decade ago, really. You know, we didn't go deep into sort of that the philosophy we were behind, so the education process back then, right? But my first true real mentor at any sort of level was a as a sprint coach, or actually a track and field coach named Dan Paff. Who I met in 1995. So I was I was good friends with a Canadian sprinter named Donovan Bailey. He was working with Dan. Uh, Donovan said to me one day, "Listen, if you're really serious about this coaching stuff, you should come down, spend some time with me and my coach, and learn from Dan." And that's what I did. So in 1995, I, I took a group of young sprinters in uh, Calgary down to Austin, University of Texas, where uh, Dan was based at the time, and I spent I think three weeks there. Uh, in 1995, and then another three or four weeks there in 96. And then that just grew over time. And it was, it was really, it was a, it was a perfect mentorship opportunity, you know, where you spend two or three weeks just embedded in this other coach's program plan. And you just, I attached myself to Dan's hip for the entirety of the time. And then I'd go away and be by myself or be with my peers up in Canada, you know, thousands of miles away. And just try to figure it out for the next 11 months before I'd go back down there and meet Dan again. It's different now, right? I mean, now it's, you know, we're, you know, through Zoom or through video or through social media or whatever, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to maintain these relationships. But back then it was through, you know, through letter, through the occasional phone call. And, but most of it was done in person. So those are, I would say my two primary mentors. But, you know, and I've, I've, I've told the story before. I think what we really, undervalue some time in the educational process is the people who we are coaching alongside and with. And I had a really rich environment of high performing people in Calgary. So Calgary was the home to the Canadian Sports Centre, where I think it was 24 national teams were based in Calgary through the through the 90s, because that's, you know, from the, the legacy of the 1988 Olympic Games. So there's some really smart people there, whether they be sports scientists or SNC coaches, or uh, sports medicine professionals, or therapists, or whatever—just a really rich learning environment. And all of these colleagues, all of these people within the system—you know—we're all sort of mentoring each other, all trying to figure out this pretty new thing at the time, right? We're talking through the '90s and late '90s, where sport performance was a pretty new field. You know, it was a really new industry. So it's—and then you know, coaching as a profession. 
also in, in amateur sports. That was very new as well. At least bringing a certain sort of scientific expertise to it was really new. So, um, you know, I, I, two sort of figureheads in my life, in my father and in Dan, but in the just the richness of the environment that I was operating within just just gave me such such an incredible sort of learning place to be at the time. Okay, there's a lot I want to get into there, but I'm going to start with with Dan. So to set the stage for listeners who aren't in the track and field world, Dan is basically a legend in the sport and coaching. Um, one of the guys we'd probably put on the Mount Rushmore of track and field coaches. Um, I'm curious, like learning from Dan, having a, a legend be kind of your mentor. Now having you know going from 1995 to now 2022, how do you take what Dan? you know, has taught you an influence, but then like bring your own like solutions or problem solvings into that. Because one of the things that I've often talked with other coaches about is when they have a main mentor like that, especially someone who's well-known, who's like successful, all that good stuff. Sometimes they, they get a little trapped because it's almost like if you go anywhere outside of that kind of coaching tree, it's almost like an act of betrayal to some. So I'm I'm curious to hear kind of how you kind of navigate that development of your own philosophy under a mentor that, you know, is so legendary in sport. Yeah, that's a really good question. It's I sort of alluded to it before about sort of, you know, how the process originally worked. Right. And I thought it was perfect. Like in retrospect, I didn't really understand this at the time, but just being embedded within the system for two or three weeks and then going away for the remainder of the year to figure it out. You can't copy somebody at that point. Right. Yeah. I'm, you're influenced heavily by it. All it really did was give me sort of a lighthouse. All right. That's who I want to be in 20 or 25 years. This is the person who I feel like that's that's what I think this could be. Like if I look in the future of, and what I could potentially be doing and how I could be doing it in a couple of decades, that's it. Now, how do I set up my life to do that? So that became the question. So it wasn't necessarily that I was sort of directly copying him. It just became this sort of guidepost, this or this signpost, you know, or a, or a, a lighthouse. I mean, that's that's the type of coach that I want to become. So in that sense, it was perfect. But also, you know, to get to um, – you know, the the nitty gritty of your question. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with just copying to begin with anyway, you know? And my first couple of years, I was basically just running a Dan Path program with most of my athletes. Here's the program. And Dan, that was that Dan said that. He said, you don't know anything yet. Which, you know, as a uh, 27 or 28-year-old who has been in the industry for a few years already, I, I, I kind of took that a certain way. But I... um you know, I, I just bought into it. He said, you don't know anything yet, so just copy my program for an, for a year or two. And what that did is it took all the pressure away from me to try to figure out what the program could be and put the focus on me, my ability to actually coach it, to get this information across to the athletes I was working with. So from that standpoint, and in hindsight, and this is one of the things that I, we you know, that I talk to younger coaches about now is when you choose a mentor, it's not just about just having this guy that you kind of, you're going to kind of copy the stuff that he does and so on and so forth. Actually do the program. Do it, you know, just copy it. And I think now it's, you know, that's become something 
uh, a little bit more, you know, outside of the or, or expands outside of this industry too, right? Just there's nothing wrong with copying. And then we can uh, kind of start combining it with some of the other influences we may have and eventually transform it into something fresh and new, right? Which is our own philosophy, which is we, we sort of develop over the course of time. But what I find that, you know, even back then, but more so now, so many young coaches are trying to skip those first two steps to get into that, hey, what's mine? You know, my own sort of unique philosophy. And I tell you, you don't have the, you just don't have the information yet. You don't have the experience yet. Take your time, be patient, find the work of somebody that you really respect and just copy it for a while and learn from that. And then as you get more and more comfortable, we can start combining it with other things, other ways, other means, other methods, whatever. So I, I kind of fell into that backwards a little bit. I didn't really know why I was doing it just out of circumstance, right? Dan was 4,000 miles away. So it was, it was easy for me to just be, you know, um, influenced by him, but still influenced by the other things that was going on in my life at the time. I, I love that. And it reminds me of something in my own life. I remember, gosh, I was in college, so probably 21, 22. And, and Tom Telez, another track coach, knew that, you know, I was working with him. He knew I was interested in coaching. And he said it, his advice to me was read as much as you can, watch as much as you can, observe as much as you can. And most of it isn't going to make a lot of sense right now because like you don't have the knowledge to. But eventually, at some point, you're going to, if you just like, you're going to get to this point where it just kind of clicks and you're like, oh, like, that's why this, that's why I've been told to do this, or this is what they were trying to do. But you have to kind of go through the sludge for a long time before you can get to that point where you get a little clarity, where you you then have that freedom to kind of explore a little bit on your own. Yeah, hundred percent. And it's, I'll tell you my Tom Telez story. So as you know, uh, coach Telez is Dan's primary mentor, right? As, as he was with, with many, as he is with many still. So Dan would continually be talking about coach Telez all the time. I'd never met him. You know, you read some of his work and, you know, there's the odd article that you can find here or there and some of the old journals, you know, back then, but I'd never met him. And I finally got the opportunity to meet uh, coach Telez at uh, Texas A&M. And there was a competition there, maybe in, this might've been 1999 or 2000. And he's standing in the middle of the track or in the middle of the field, you know, in the middle, in, you know, in the middle of the track. And he's just by himself. So I go up and introduce myself to him. I told him who I was and I'm you know, sort of working with Dan and blah, blah, blah. And we spent sort of the next 15 minutes just talking. And I remember walking, you know, I, I remember going into that conversation kind of nervous, right? Here's this legend, Coach Tom Telez, you know, who's a mentor of my mentor. And I was really nervous about this. And I remember walking away being incredibly underwhelmed like really, really underwhelmed, right? And then from that point, I went and sort of, okay, am I missing something here? You know? So I, I searched out, sought out some video that, he, that he'd that uh, he put together. And I, I can't remember what it was, but I remember watching this and there was about two hours of video. And I said, ah, all right, well, I, I kind of know this stuff. You know, am I, am I already that smart? Am I, am I coach Telez already? I'm, I'm, I'm not even 30 yet. You know, I'm really got this stuff figured out. And it wasn't until much later in my career where I figured out what that was, you know? So it's, you know, the, the way I, the, I think what's the way in which this has been communicated now is the simplicity 
on the other side of complexity, right? So when you're just starting out, you don't really know anything. You just do the basics. You don't really know why you're doing them that way or what the basics even are. You're just sort of copying somebody. And as you learn more, you just add more and more stuff to your whatever, whether it was your philosophy or your system or your the methods that you put into place on to do whatever it is you're doing, right? Coaching or otherwise. And you just at some point in your career, you end up with this just big, chaotic mess and you just are so confused that I don't know what I'm doing anymore and you start throwing stuff away. And then that that process takes years, right? Decade maybe. And finally, you end up with the stuff that you were doing at the very start. You just now have a depth and breadth of understanding of why you're doing it. And I realized then, oh, that was Tom Tellers. You know, I was the basic on the other side of the complexity, and he was the simple on this side of complexity. So we were kind of doing the same stuff, but his depth of understanding around all of this stuff was such that, you know, I couldn't even begin to 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 get to. Right. Dan's talked about before, he said this going, you know, prior to me meeting him. He said, Coach Telez has, has forgotten more than I ever know. And I understand that now. And that's true. I mean, I, I feel that as a coach now in his, you know, mid almost mid-50s. I kind of feel that myself, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel like I've forgotten so much stuff, you know, I wish I could remember it all, but maybe that's part of the process, right? We forget the stuff that really doesn't matter. That's the, that's the complex bit, the chaotic bit that doesn't really make any sense. So we kind of forget that and just end up with the basics again. It reminds me of this wonderful Zen cone that goes like it first, there were mountains and rivers, then there were no mountains and rivers, and then there were mountains and rivers. And it's used to describe the path to enlightenment. Think in more secular terms, you'd say it mastery is really a path of simplicity, complexity, back to simplicity. Um, and, and I love how you're describing that. And it completely mirrors my path into performance coaching with non-athletes. I mean, to this day, I still basically copy everything that I learned from my mentors, Ed and Brooke. And, you know, maybe there's like 5% originality. And if my clients are listening, I'm sorry. Um, good thing Ed and Brooke aren't taking new clients. You're stuck with me. Um, but yeah, like you have to have that coaching tree or that that mentorship. I think it's so important um, to be able to learn and, and be a part of a lineage. I want to pivot real quickly. It's something that um, Dan Paff, who in addition to being a phenomenal coach, is just a wonderful person. And he's been quite public about his experience of um, alcoholism and depression during periods of time when his life was just so obsessive with coaching and with being the best coach in the world. And when I was going through my depression a couple of years back, Dan was super helpful for me. He recommended books. We talked on the phone. I'm curious, you strike me, and I know you well, but you're not like my best friend, but you strike me as being pretty all in on coaching. Like it is your, it's a huge part of your identity, if not the whole of it, you're doing it at the pointiest end of the field. How have you avoided, or maybe if you haven't even avoided, how do you work through some of these traps when you really care so deeply about something that requires a lifestyle that's unconventional and not fall into depression or not numb the nerves or the loneliness or whatever it is with alcohol I'm curious if, if Dan's been a mentor to you or if you've been able to learn from him on that side of things too. Because obviously we're talking to you as a coach, but this is applicable to anyone that wants to be the best at what they do. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just a really good question, right? And we we have this conversation a lot. Uh, you know, we we have these coaching programs at Altus that we run sort of every six or eight weeks where coaches from all over the world come and spend time with us. And, you know, we have at the end of each day, we have this roundtable discussion at, where, where both of you guys have been, um, you know, honored us with your presence at, at those things. And some we have some really incredibly rich conversations. And many of them are the same types of conversations. And that one comes up every single program that we run that question and that conversation discussion around that it's you know what used to be it used to be hey how do you deal with work-life balance you know and, and, I'm, and i'm glad to say that you know and you guys are partly responsible for going now beyond just looking at this as some sort of balance between work and life right we're having more rich conversations and then just that now so it used to be there where we just had this very basic thing okay how do we how do we deal with this you know how do we deal with being this obsessive in you know let's let's face it um i feel like to be the best in any field you know you're generally kind of obsessive you know and there's 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 a downside to that and dark side to that as well and that's that's um that's sometimes what we deal with somehow some some coaches, some other people in other other fields are challenged by that. But I'll be honest with you, Brad, I've, it's, I've never struggled with it, ever. You know, I've I've always loved what I'm doing, always. And there'll be times in my life where I don't stop thinking about what I'm doing for months on end. My entire life revolves around coaching, everything, from the second I wake up to the second I go to bed. Now, I don't have a family, right? So I can kind of get away with it. But well, I was going to, I was going to ask, let me interject real quick. Is that simply because the stars haven't aligned? And if you met someone and fell in love, you'd be open to it. Or is that a little bit of coaching gets in the way or you choose coaching? Oh, it's both. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's both Co coaching kind of gets in the way of putting, putting yourself in the positions where that could actually, you know, happen. But, uh, you know, I'm also very open and, and very open for it. It's nothing I'm seeking out, uh, you know, directly, but it's it's never really been an issue for me. And I, I think I haven't struggled with it probably because of that, though. Right. So I haven't been forced to deal with it. But I, I have found and I've been sort of self-aware enough and I've been thinking, uh, you know, or having sort of meta metaphysical thoughts or philosophical thoughts for 30 years, you know, I, I, I'm kind of introspective guy and I think about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it a lot. So I'm, I have an awareness sometimes if I'm, if I'm going a little bit too deep here, I'm getting a little bit stuck and I need to take a break. I'm generally pretty good at understanding that. And I, you know, one thing I did when I stood, when I got into, uh, actually, let me back up. So when I was in Canada, um, at the end of the O's, I was really getting tired of coaching. And I was tired of the bureaucracy behind it. I was tired of just what I thought at the time, just, man, I'm so sick of just banging my head against this wall, trying to change the system or positively affect the system in ways in which we can actually, you know, enrich the lives and the environments and the performances of these athletes. But it just is fighting me back over and over and over again. And I just said, man, I'm just tired. I'm done. I'm done. So I started doing something else. You know, I said, I'm, 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 I'll coach my athletes through to the 2010 Olympic Games, and that's it. I'm finished. I just don't 
dig this anymore. You know, and by that point in 2008, I'd been coaching since 1984. I've been coaching at the elite level since 1992. So for 16 years, pretty long, pretty good long career at that point. But I just, I just decided to walk away because I'd had enough. And I moved into something else, just coaching on the side, working with some of the athletes that I was still working with leading up to 2010, but only for a few hours of the day. And then actually Dan called me up in uh, November in 2009 and said, hey, I just got a gig in the UK uh, running this track and field center. Why don't you come over and help me? I said, okay. Yeah. <laughs> if, you know, if I want to design my perfect coaching gig, it's coaching sprinters in the UK where I'm from, all my family's at, and in a country where the sport matters, you know, and is supported. And so this is all of the stuff that I've been fighting against for the last, you know, decade or 15 years. This has just all come perfect, perfect, perfect scenario for me. You know, work alongside my mentor, work with an elite group of athletes in a system and in a country that respects uh, respects the sport. So I went and did that. And that sort of reignited my passion behind coaching again. Right. But one thing that I did in the UK, because it was it, it, it could quite easily have gotten to the point where I just got tired again is every five weeks I scheduled a week regeneration period for me, you know, where I would just, I'd, I'd fly off to Oslo or Berlin or Amsterdam or Munich, which is easy when you're in London, right? It's just a quick, <laughs> you know, 49 euro, easy, easy jet flight somewhere. So it's, that was something I was really, I was always been pretty good at just shutting off, you know, okay. Yes. I'm, I'm into coaching. I'm all in on coaching. But I'm pretty good when I go away and I just forget about it. I just really, truly forget about it. And, you know, just as I'm speaking about this here, I'm kind of thinking, well, where does that come from? Right. Because my dad wasn't really like that. So I didn't get it from him. But in, in, when I moved to Canada, I was 12 and I moved two weeks into a new school year. And at that point, all the kids had had their, they've got their cliques, right? They've got their friend friend groups and I'm just moving in by myself. And it's just me, the weird British kid with a fun, funky accent. But on the same day, this other kid moved to uh, Canada as well from a foreign country. It was this Jamaican kid. And he moved there and it was his first day was that day. And then him and I became really tight friends. So my, my best friend at the time, I was 12 years old, became this Jamaican kid. His mother was a, a, a chef. And his father was a DJ. Uh, he had a real job as well, but he was DJ on the side, right? So I became really sort of engulfed and super interested into this culture, this Jamaican culture around music, food and, and sport and all this stuff that came, came with that. And I feel like that's probably something that allowed me to decompress, you know? So I, from that, I kind of, I became a DJ, right? So I started DJing in 1986 and I DJed until, until the day that I left Canada. Haven't DJed since, but I DJ for almost 25 years. Um, so I feel like I had enough other stuff going in my life that you also have to be super focused on, you know. So it was it allowed me the 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 time and space to get away and decompress. And I think I had always had enough interests where I I, I never was really um, I, I didn't struggle with that potential path of being overly obsessed. Yeah, I have one one question before I turn it over to Steve. What did you do in that intervening period where you go from being one of the top coaches in the country that you were in? Were you like working in middle management in a software company for a year? I mean, what were you doing and how did you manage that? And I and I say this seriously because I think what often happens, especially to creatives and entrepreneurs, is it's such a rocky roller coaster. 
So you start a company, it does great. And then there's a recession, you lose all your funding and you're unemployed. You're an author, you get hot, you write a good book or two, and then a book flops and suddenly you can't get an advance. And I'm curious, yeah, what did you do in that intervening period? And how did you cope with the fact that you were surrounded by the best athletes in the world and now you're in a normal job? Which is, which is the question that a lot of my work colleagues or my new work colleagues were asking me, what are you doing here, man? You know, um, well, yeah, I'll back up a little bit and talk you through the process. So it's, it's one of the things that we do when we're working with athletes, or I, I feel is the most important thing is we try to figure out what makes the athlete good at what they do. Why are they good? Why are they even here at this level? And then we direct our entire coaching process around that, right? We try to figure out what their unique ability is and then feed it and continue to feed that over time. So I was asking myself that question in the O's and sort of the middle to late O's, like, what, what am I good at? And there was a few things I was good at, right? I was good at music and DJing, but there was, there was no career for me in that. I mean, there's no way I was going to actually make a career there. It was costing, costing me more money than I was making. You're going out, you know, buying, I've got 22,000 records in storage, right? You can do the, do the, uh, do the math on how much that would have cost me when you multiply it by 10 to $15 per record. Um, so it wasn't going to be that. Um, it was art. I went to art school after, after, uh, high school. I was really good at art but not good enough where I could go and make a career at it, you know, this, or at least the type of art that I was good at, I wasn't going to make a career at it. So, all right, that's, that's out. What else am I good at? What else am I really interested in? I was really interested in food and where food came from and all about it. So, okay. I could be a cook or I could, you know, run, uh, run an organic uh, market or something like that. Right. So I started looking around for things that I could do in food and I was, oh, oh sorry, one more. I was really interested in tea. Which is, which, which is kind of funny at this point because now I'm just the, the biggest coffee snob on the planet. But back then, you know, 20 something years ago, I couldn't care less about coffee and I was all in on tea, right? So I was just going to say, that sounds like a betrayal. When people say Stu McMillan, I have two images pop into my mind. One is a sprinter and the other is an espresso. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I feel bad. Um, but back then, I didn't have my first coffee, by the way, until 2011. So I, be- I became a snob really quick on coffee. Uh, but back in 2008, I didn't, you know, I was, this is pre-coffee, but I was all in on tea. So I wanted to actually open up a tea shop. So I started, you know, I put some business plans together and said, okay, I could potentially do this and open up a tea shop there in Calgary. What I, um, what I ended up actually doing, there was a new organic food, uh, grocery store that was moving to Calgary. And that's, and I saw in the paper that they were looking for employees. So I applied. And I started off as their uh, produce manager. And as the produce manager, it was my responsibility to put the produce out, make sure it looked good. And I think that's about it when I started, right? It was just bring it in, take it off the truck, put it in the fridge, take it out, put it in your and, and display it nicely. And that grew, and I actually dug it. Like I was making 18 bucks an hour and I said, all right, this is, this is all right. So I did that full time and then I went and coached in the evening. So it was, it was going okay, but I really liking it. And I was actually had some sort of affinity for it. So uh, that became something where I now uh, started doing the ordering, 
I started developing these relationships with some of the farmers. I travel out to some, travel to some of the farmers, learn more about the process, learn more about organic food and so on and so forth, develop relationships with some of the customers. Hey, this customer wants more of this. And so I'll order more of this and so on. Did all the pricing myself. So it's it almost running my own little business, you know, within this business. And then they expanded and they opened up a, a market on Tuesdays and they had a market on Saturdays. So I'm running these two markets as well as the store. I was really digging it, but making $18 an hour, right? So it was, it was, I was, yeah, I'm really enjoying this and it was, it's going okay. I'm still, I'm still coaching, but I'm only coaching three or four hours a day. So yeah, it was, uh, I, yeah, and I had, you know, developed really good relationships with the athletes I'm working. So it didn't feel like work at that point. And then, uh, but that was that was it for me. I was going to transition full time into this, and I started thinking about what that could be. Right? Am I going to open up my own store? So I started having those sort of feelings at the at the end of '09, and obviously that all changed the, the day that Dan called me up and and offered me the job for the UK. And I said, "Okay, I'm still a coach." You know, immediately I understood that I'm still a coach, and I haven't looked back. You know, it's, it's and it's still to this day. That's kind of what gets me up in the morning. You know, it's we. Um, we do more than just coaching now. You know, it's coaching probably takes up two to, as you know, Steve, two to four hours of your day, right? Plus some programming and some other things and texting back and forth with athletes. But it's it's not a full-time gig in and of itself. There's other stuff to do. But so much of, the, of, of my work now is that other stuff. And that's really more and more interesting to me now, you know, running the company, educating the next generation of coaches. I just all want to right. say one. Well, sorry, Steve. I just want to say one more thing, just because I know you two are track nerds, so you you all know this, but many of our listeners don't, and and they might be thinking, yeah, maybe this guy's like coaching athletes in weird events at the Olympics. Shortly after your stock in produce, you have a coaching relationship with Andre DeGrasse. For listeners, will know him as the light skinned Canadian kid that smiled at Usain Bolt is the two of them went head to head for golds and Olympics, uh, golds and silvers in the Olympics. So just, I just want to put that in perspective for listeners, just how wild it is. It's not like you're coaching anyone. You're coaching the fastest person at that time, the second fastest person on the planet. So it's, it's a wild story. All right, Steve, over to you. Well, I've got a, it's funny they say that I've got a good story behind that. If you want to hear it, let's hear it. We can hear it. Let's hear it behind the smile. So, you know, the famous, the most famous picture, and if you Google Andre de Grasse now, you'll see that picture. That'll be the first picture that comes up. If you Google Andre de Grasse Usain Bolt, that'll be the entire first page. You know, very varying uh, uh, pictures of them smiling at each other. And that was the semifinal of the uh, Rio Olympics in 2016, 200 meters. Um, and going into that, you know, the, the, these were the two favorites, but... Usain was clearly the favorite. Usain Bolt was the um, world record holder in the 100, the world record holder in the 200, the world record holder in the 4x1, the greatest sprinter who's ever lived. He was, at that point, he had a uh, personal best that was eight-tenths faster than anyone else in the field in the 200 meters. Clearly, he was the favorite, right? But... At that point, uh, Usain had had a bit of an up-and-down year, had been battling quite a few injuries over the course of the year, and came into the Olympics not in great shape. Now, he won the 100 still. Andre was third. But I felt that Andre could win the 200. Andre felt like he could win the 200 as well. But if you line up Andre against Usain in a 200-meter race, all things being equal, 
Usain is probably going to win 98 times out of out of 100. Usain, that's just clear. He's eight-tenths faster as far as his personal record goes. So what's our only chance? And I'm thinking, okay, what can we do here? And when they were drew against each other in the semifinal, I said, okay, here's, here's our opportunity. But it, the Olympic schedule goes, the 100 uh, quarters are on one day. Then the next day is the semifinal, and then the evening is the final, and then the 200-meter quarters are the following day, and then the next day is the semifinal, and the next day is the final. So you go back to back to back to back to back for five days, right? It's all-out sprinting for five straight days. It's a big, big load, and it's a big, big load on, at that point, was a 29-year-old Usain Bolt, I think, and Andre was 21. I said, okay, if we've got anything over Andre, we've got this. We've got youth and you can recover in between these days, hopefully, maybe, better than Usain can. So here's what we're going to do in the semifinal. He's, this is what he's going to want to do. He's going to want to destroy you on the bend, come off the bend in the lead, and then just jog in, shut down at 150 meters, and walk across the line. As the winner, he gets the best lane in the final, and all is good, right? He hasn't had to work very hard, goes into the final, no problem. He's fresh. He's recovered. He can go out and run 1950 in the final and just walk it. No one else can touch him. That's what he's going to want to do. We're not going to let him do that. You're going to stay on him right over the, right around the bend. And as you, as you come off the bend, you're just all hell's going to break loose. You're going to destroy him. He's going to expect you to just sort of relax and jog beside him. And you can both just sort of jog over the line. Don't let him do that. Race him all the way to the line. That was the goal. And if all, if this works, He's going to be more tired than you will be because you're younger. No problem. So long story short, that's what he did. It worked out perfectly. Usain ran 1978 and Andre ran 1980, which was a PR for him at the time. And Usain had to be helped off of the track. And he was actually wheeled back to the warm-up track in a wheelchair because of his cramps. And they're just rushing around, getting getting ice and all this stuff. Usain was pissed. Like, he was pissed. He did not want Andre to do that. He thought that was disrespect. He said, you know, I'm I'm Usain Bolt, man. You don't do that to me. You just let me do it the way I want to do it. Um, he was really, you know, they're laughing. But basically, Usain was wagging his finger at Andre. And Andre just smiling back at him. Don't wag your finger at me, man. This is, you know, I'm trying to win this too. I'm not just going to give it to you. And it actually, it did actually work. Usain Bolt came back the next day, the final, and I believe he won it in 1996 or 1998. Like it was a lot slower than the day before. He was he was really tired, right? He couldn't recover. He's getting all sorts of massage and stuff from the, from, from the semifinal to the final. Could not recover at all. But guess what happened to Andre? Same thing, right? He also couldn't recover. He ran significantly slower the next day as well. Ran 20.04. You know, it's a quarter of a second slower, but hung on for the silver medal. So it was, it's in, in hindsight, you know, probably our, that was our best shot to win it. Didn't work, but we had to take the shot. But that's, that's the story behind the, the smile, right? Those two guys smiling at each other. That really wasn't a smile. It was a bit of a, a finger wag. And hey, what are you doing here, mate? Oh man, I love that. That's such a wonderful story. Um, and I love just the 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 thought that went into okay, this is our shot. Like we're gonna take it. Um, all right. So I want to ask ask you about coaching a little bit, in the sense that you just described 
you know, at the beginning, I said you kind of have an eclectic background. You you described how you went, you know, deep into food, art, tea, coffee. You know, I know you're well read as well. You're almost like this, this, and then on top of that, if we actually in this podcast wanted to talk the biomechanics of sprinting, like everybody's mind would be blown because, like, you know that to a the nth degree. So you have this kind of like specialist in the sense of sprinting, mechanics, power sports, where you know it, uh, you know, arguably uh, among the best in the world. But then you just have this broad generalist as well. How do you think that general like ability helps your specialty? Massively. <laughs> yeah, massively. I think it's really, really important. And I think and maybe that even goes back a little bit to Brad's question prior about maybe, you know, why I haven't, you know, really been become overly obsessive and uh, to the point where it's troubled me, you know, and where where it's led to depression. Because I've always had this wide range of sort of interest and curiosity about so many different things. I feel like, you know, I, I grew up in a in a house where my mother probably reads on average two books a week and has done since the day I was born. You know, so she's a massive reader. Now, she doesn't read the type of books that I read, that I read and that, that I'm really interested in. You know, she loves crime novels and all these things, right? But I think it's just being in a house where this is important. Reading is really important. For my father, education was really, really important, like massive, massive growing up, right? So it's, it's, I've always sort of, this has been a part of me, you know, it, so it just, for me, it just fed this insatiable curiosity about everything, you know? I, like I really became super curious about life, why we're here, what are we doing? You know, what's the purpose of this whole thing? Why am I a coach? Why are these guys athletes? What is the relationship here? Blah, 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 blah. It's just, you know, and I, I don't feel like you can answer those questions in a specialist way, right? Um, and and it's, it's, it aligns back to, you know, what, what I felt really gave this some structure and some purpose to the way in which I educated myself going forward was when I did first meet Dan in 1995. And the one thing that everyone will see, well, every single person has the same thought when they meet Dan and watch Dan work for the first time or or have a conversation with him is this guy seems to know everything about everything. Like everything about everything, not just as it aligns with coaching, but all this other stuff too, right? Like he's really well read. He's really, he's got this breadth of understanding about so many different things. And remember, this is, this was my lighthouse, right? This is what I want to become. And this is, and actually, actually he gave me, you know, some structure to that. He said, if you really want to be an elite coach, you need to know about all of this other stuff. It's not just about coaching. It's not just about biomechanics. It's not just about pedagogy. It's not just about motor learning. It's all of, also about fueling and regeneration and nutrition and sports medicine and psychology and all of these different things and physiology and neuromuscular, blah, 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 whatever, right? He just gave me this big, massive list of things that I need to know. So, okay. <laughs> all right. I guess I got to get to work on, on understanding all of this stuff, right? So it's, but I feel like still, you know, and I get you know, being a generalist, I think, has been something that's uh, guided my own education journey over the course of my career. But I don't feel like you can truly be 
elite or excellent in what you do with only being a generalist, right? And that the uh, the Mickelson book, uh, Mickelson and I can't remember whose uh, co-author was, but the, the neo-generalist, right? Yeah. Like specializing in one or two or three different things. Like, and then zooming back out and having the ability to see this special domain in context with all this other stuff. Like that's, that is where the true elites live. You know, and so I specialized in sprint biomechanics. I, sp- I specialized at one point on therapy. I was basically a therapist for eight hours a day for a decade. I did well over 10,000 hours of therapy. I mean, there's, it's, it's, you know, that was, that was it for me. I, nutrition and supplementation really deep into that for a few years. Right. But then always zooming out. One thing I've been, you know, the last sort of five or six years going deeper and deeper into is uh, is looking at things with a systems perspective and that now it colors and biases everything that i think about and the way i think about it it's a lens in which i look at sport at coaching and at life right a system is a bunch of component parts that interact and interrelate to serve a common function or purpose and there's a hierarchy to understanding a system. It's not in understanding the component parts as individual pieces. It's in understanding the purpose, the function, and how all of those component parts interrelate. So it's not about understanding just sprint biomechanics. It's not about just understanding pedagogy or nutrition or therapy. It's understanding how all of these pieces interact and interrelate to feed or to, to support the common purpose of, in our case, high-performance sport of getting the athlete faster or healthier and or healthier. And I sort of have taken that approach to everything in my life. You know, it's just like, you know, I have this, uh, just, as I said, this broad curiosity about a bunch of things. And at this point, you know, you just, uh, uh, as I said before, you just make all these connections to different things. And um, yeah, it's, uh, I guess that's about it. That's, 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 that's the answer to that question. No, I, I, <laughs> I, could, uh... I, I love that. And I want to follow up with one thing because I think this ties back to something that you talked about that I know Dan Paff talks about. I know Tom Tellez talks about is you just outlined a broad array. Like you're saying, go general, have your specialty as in the Neo Generous book. Great book. I highly recommend how do you not get lost in the complexity and come to getting back on that other side of for these athletes, even though we're talking about all these systems and everything for these athletes, if I want to have that impact, we got to get back to this, this simplicity. Yeah, you do get lost, but that's the fun, right? Honestly, like if you don't get lost, it's no fun. Like it's not challenging. Like the, the, the challenge in everything is getting lost and trying to find your way out. You know, like in, in, learning anything is all about, you know, going into this deep rabbit holes and trying to figure out what it all means. And all right, how do I get out of this hole? Sometimes you can't get out, you know, but it's, it's as an educator, too. And as a coach as well, you all always have to have this sort of defining philosophy that's about these three, four, five, six, seven things. Like, what is your philosophy about? And then that sort of defines everything. Right. And, and even when you get lost you still have these five or six heuristics to guide your process. So as long as we remember what those heuristics are, it's fine. You know, then I just, I purposefully try and dig myself into these deep holes that I can't get out of. It's, that's a fun bit, you know? There's good research. Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who's most well-known for his book, Flow, 
has another book. Well, he has many books, but um, the book Creativity, that's not nearly as well read or cited, where he looked at over, I think it was 300 people across domains that had won MacArthur Prizes or Nobels or Rhodes Scholarships, uh, so on and so forth. And he found a very common trend, which is just that they go very, very deep in one area. And then before their breakthrough, they have a period where they're actually going broad. And then they take what they learned broad and bring it back to their area and have the breakthrough. So this is something that's been observed in in multiple disciplines. I have two questions. One is metaphysical, and then one is very tactical on leading. So let's start with the metaphysical. We text more about philosophy and existentialism and you know humanistic psychology than we do about sprinting. I'm curious, what is the point of all this? Like these guys are running around a circle as fast as they can. You're dedicating your life and, and, and gals, guys and gals, you coach both men and women. Um, what's the point of all this? And it, like, how do you currently consider that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, I mean, you know, you'll get a different answer tomorrow, Brad. For me, the whole purpose is, is just trying to figure out what the purpose is. Like the answer is in the question. You know, and it's, it's, I, there's, there's days where I wake up weeks where I question what I'm doing now and why I'm doing it, you know, it's, it's, but it's important. I feel we, we should always ask those questions, but again, in context to everything else and understanding what the big picture is, because if we, you know, if we bailed every time we had a question about what we were doing, then we're never going to get actually anything done. You know what I mean? And that's sort of where I was, as I said, back in sort of 08, you know, where I was having that question every day. What am I doing, man? I've had enough of this. And just every day, and I was just, there was no end in sight to that. And there'll be days where I still have those questions. Like, what am I doing? But it's it's, at this point now too, right? And I have this question a lot with older coaches, by the way, you know, or this conversation with older coaches, coaches in their 50s or similar to me, who've been doing this for 25 to 30 years. And I'm I'm thinking now, like, what does post-Paris look like for me that'll be my 10th olympic games that i've coached at you know i've hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of athletes and yeah i'm doing things differently and i'm learning more and i'm still excited and you know being around a bunch of 20 to 25 year olds kind of helps to keep me young and i'm outside on the track all day and there's all sorts of positive things around this but do i want to continue doing this like how long do i want to continue doing this you know so i'm having these these more existential questions pop up more and more and more. And I find myself having more of those conversations with a lot of the coaches around my age again, right? And we ask ourselves, well, you know, part of it is, this is all I know at this point. I'm 53 years old. And, you know, if I'm going to go and do something else, what what is that going to be? You know, is, do I, am I going to start something brand new? Am I going to go and start an organic grocery store at 53? Probably not. That was a different question at 33 or, or, or however old I was at the time. So it's, I don't know, at this, at this point, it's, it's that is the whole purpose is still asking the questions about what the purpose is. And as long as I'm comfortable with the answers, I continue rolling along. Right. Um, but I, but honestly, I've, I've never been a person to put together a, a five year plan or a three year plan or a 10 year plan. I just, my, my goal each day is to get as much out of it as I possibly can and just thread as many of those days on top of each other as they can do good work 
try to, you know, try to be as good a person as I possibly can. And hopefully I'll live a good life and then affect other people's lives in good and positive ways. That's kind of my goal, right? But at this point, I think this is the first time where I started thinking a little bit more long term. Okay, so Paris 2024, that's my 10th games. Am I going to do another one? Am I going to continue coaching? Because one thing at this point in my career, like I'm I'm running this company, right, with, with my business partners. Um, that's a full-time job. You know, that's educating a community of coaches and running a business with a number of employees. And that's hard. Like, that's really hard. Coaching full-time is a full-time job. And that's really hard. And I'm doing both of them, you know, and it's really, really hard. And at some point, you know I'd like to relax a little bit more, I think, you know, I'd like to have the ability to go out and, you know, spend six, six weeks in the Caribbean somewhere and just, you know, just relax, but I can't right now. So it's, how am I going to start? Like, what do I want to be doing in a decade in five years? And then how do I then sort of um, structure the next 18 months of my life to enable that, I guess, is some of the questions I'm starting to ask myself now. So my more concrete question is I've had the privilege to observe you coaching, I think three times. And something that has struck me on all of those occasions is the power dynamics in your relationships with your athletes. So as an onlooker, it's very clear that you command respect and you're the coach, but it also kind of seems like everyone's just hanging out with their friends and you're like their friend too. And I'm curious how you think about that. And I think this applies obviously not just to to coaches in sport, but to to any leader that's working with people that are really high performance. Um it has it it the first time I went to watch you coach, I thought like, wow, this is like closer to a high school workout. Not in terms of what the athletes could do, but in terms of like the joy that was out there and the fun and you know, people are putting their arms around each other and you're smiling at people. But then you also like have this ability to be like, all right, like back on the line and everybody listens. Is that something that you're intentional about? Is that something that just kind of happens organically? Uh, I'm curious if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, it, it's both. I mean, it's definitely something that I'm intentional about. Um, you know, Dan talks about like his number one KPI for all the athletes that he's coaches is they have to have fun. They have to enjoy what they're doing. Right. That's my number one KPI. If I don't enjoy what I'm doing, what's the point? I mean, there's no point in me doing this. So for me to be able to enjoy it, I have to ensure that the culture is one in which all of the people that are involved in that environment and that ecosystem, they also enjoy it. So I'm pretty intentional with that. And the other part of it is, you know, I feel like with, with most athletes, most of the time, you know, we'll have conversations and it'll be fairly clear to them that I kind of know what I'm doing. You know, so there'll be a, a a pretty automatic respect, and it's not that's you know not not across the board. You always have to you can't take that for granted. You always have to work on 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 that over and over again. The coaching process is continuing to to um, cultivate that. But you know that's that's clear. I think to most of the athletes, most of the time, that yeah, I'm kind of good at this. I know what I'm doing, and they respect me, and it's okay. And um, you know, from day one, I'm pretty consistent with trying to ensure that the coaching ecosystem is one where everyone can be um, clear about their, it's there for them to enjoy, but if they're here 
for high performance, then that is why we're here. Right? If you're here to be try to be one of the best in the world, then when it's time to get on the line, it's time to get on the line. You know, now the five or six or 10 or 15 minutes in between that and then the 20 hours around, you know, that training day where you're by yourself. Yeah, it's let's enjoy that. Let's make sure that we're having a good, enjoyable time here and, and, and enjoy being together in the process. And I, but I feel like, you know, it's uh, it's really important, I feel. And I think a lot of a lot of coaches uh, don't respect the importance of that, of creating the, you know, the. The flex, the flexibility within the culture, I think, is one way to put it, you know, where they they feel like they're confident enough to be themselves and enjoy it, but also know that why they're there. And that's to become the best athlete that they can possibly be, but also understand that as in any system, there's an interconnectedness between those two things. I love it. And it's so validating to what Steve and I are trying to do, because in our own relationship, in our work, like... 55% 55% of the time we're goofballs and 45% of the time we're very serious. And if it was 100% either way, it wouldn't work. So it's validating to hear you say that too. It It's, yeah, it reminds me of the practices we tried to have, which was like, you know, when you've got to flip the switch to be serious and turn it on. And then like around that, you know, if you carry that the whole time, you're just going to end up miserable, right? So it's like, how do you have that, that, time where there's joking around that shooting the shit, all that stuff that creates that connection, that belonging. And then know that when it's time to line up for interval, it's like, hey, we're trying to execute and be the best that we are. So I I know we're wrapping up here soon, um, Stu, but I couldn't have you on this podcast without asking you one very specific track question, which is, if I put you as CEO of World Athletics or just the the dictator of track and field, the sport that is that we both love, but is messy, that, as you said, you know, almost pushed you away at sometimes drove me crazy. What do you think, what would be the major changes you'd have for the sport if you just had a magic wand where you could wave it? <laughs> how, how are you expecting me to answer that question, Steve? <laughs> That question, we we could be here for ten hours just discussing. It, it, this this is the quick version. Give me the yeah. quick quick magic this, wand. Do what yeah. you need. So, this is what you know. So I I, I finished with UK Athletics uh, uh, in March of 2013, and I accepted a position as the head coach of Welsh Athletics, and I was going to do my PhD at Cardiff Metropolitan University starting in 2013. I was going to start in in April 2013. And then while in the, in the interim, I was over in Phoenix and a few of the athletes that I was working with were also in Phoenix at the time, a few, um, pole vultures, Steve Lewis, Steve Hooker and, and Brad Walker. And they knew this guy named John Godina and John Godina had this thing called world throw center. And his goal at setting up the world throw center was to change the education of elite throwers and the, sorry, the elite throws coaches and the change or improve the coaching of elite throwers, most specifically in the U.S. And his goal was always to expand that into all of the other event groups, into all of the other track and field groups, so all the sprints and the endurance runs, endurance events, and the jumps, and all the other throws. And while I was there just sort of waiting for my Welsh athletics job to come up, 
John gave me a call and said, hey, this is what I'm doing. I want to expand it into all these other event areas with the goal of changing this sport because this is a broken sport and it's dying and somebody needs to step forward and do something. And I was all in. I said, all right, I can, I can go back to Cardiff and be in the rain for five years, killing myself trying to do a PhD, or I can stay here in Phoenix in the sun and actually try to do something super positive and try to affect the entirety of this, this what was really broken at the time. And I've spent now the last 10 years with all of the staff that we've had over the course of that time, all the coaches, all the administrators, all the therapists, all of the, all of the coaches that have visited us, all of the athletes that have come through, all of our relationships and consultations and contracts with other additional uh, uh, federations from other, other uh, countries. And I'll say that probably the sport is in worse off shape now than it was a decade ago. So I'm kind of from that perspective, I'm back in 08 and 09 in Canada when I was banging my head against the wall. I said, that can't, that can no longer be our purpose. That's not the function of Altus as an organization. It can't be the purpose of me as this big system. All right. So what is my purpose? What is my function? So I stopped thinking about that, man, because it's, it's such a hard thing. It's, and it's, and it's, you see it in all of amateur sport and probably in most professional sport. It's broken. It's a broken system. It's got way too much money in it. And all the money is going to the people on top. And they're all, you know, they're motivated just to keep their job and to keep the system the way it is. And all of the people without the power, without the money, who are motivated to actually change the system, don't have the power to be able to do it. So it's it's been really, really frustrating from that perspective. I worry and I wonder about where this sport will be, but not just this sport, but where all Olympic sport will be, uh, not even just Olympic sport, but where all sport will be, right? Because there's, there's just so much money into it now that it's just, it's for me, it's really changing. Uh, it's influencing the motivation of everybody that's within it. So from that perspective, what do you do? How do you change? How do you change the influence? How do you change the motivation of the people that are running the business? You got to blow this thing up. Start again. Honestly, we, it, this, the 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 IOC the IWF the whatever you can't just make tweaks to this it's broken it really honestly truly needs blown up and new people come in start an entirely new organization with an entirely new function and purpose and then run their system in a way to actually feed that function and purpose because right now that system is operating perfectly yeah, I, I mean, it's perfectly, yeah, for the five guys at FIFA that each exactly. banked whatever they made from Qatar for the World Cup. 100%. 100%. It's perfect, right? What's the purpose of that system right now? Make more money. It's And that's doing great. Yeah. That's it. But that can't be the purpose. If that's the purpose of an international sporting federation, I'm sorry, I'm not interested. So it's... Uh, it's that's why I mean that's a really long conversation, right? It it starts probably with empowering athletes to the point where they're involved in setting up a much more appropriate system, but that's also hard, right? Who wants to do that? We've been talking about doing that for decades, and you know, different groups and different athletes have come and started and disappeared after a few years because just like we are, we've been fighting this fight for a decade, it's too hard. You can't change the system. You've got to blow it up and start again. So at some point, this will be blown up. We'll no longer uh, function 
appropriately and it'll be forced to change or be forced to be a new one coming in. So I think that's, I don't, I don't think we're very far from there, actually. I don't, I, I foresee that being uh, eight, 10 years down the line. I think we'll, it'll be some significant changes in international sports. Well, thank you so much for um, for sharing your heartfelt thoughts on the sport and for making time for this conversation. Um, I feel like we could talk forever. Something that we didn't get to, and I'm curious if you'd be interested in coming back for a part two, is because it's definitely a whole other conversation. I feel like today we got to talk a lot about the nitty gritty of, of coaching and your journey and your insights on coaching. Um, but I'd be curious maybe if you'd want to come back and talk about some of the the pitfalls that you've seen athletes fall into and the common challenges and stories and how you've helped people work through that. Because I think that that stuff tends to be uh, applicable not only in other sports, but in, in all areas of life. Yeah, more and more so. Yeah, I'd love to have that conversation. I think that's a really important uh, conversation to have. And it's one that I find myself having more and more often with more and more athletes. You know, I've I've had at this point um, two former athletes commit suicide, mm. uh, who had, you know, struggled with a transition to quote unquote normal life. So yeah, I'm, I'm interested in having that conversation anytime you're, you're willing and able to have it. All right. Well then listeners, we will be back sometime soon. We'll have to figure out the recording schedule for uh, part two with Stu McMillan. Otherwise, um, you can find Stu on Instagram at fingermash. On Twitter at Stuart McMillan one, assuming Twitter is still a thing when this is published, <laughs> who knows? And um, we'll include all this in the show notes. But as Stu was mentioning, his high performance training organization is called Altus, and they're based uh, just up the road from me in Atlanta. And just highly recommend that you you check out Stu and Altus and everything that they're doing there. Um, you know, Steve and I don't say this lightly. There's a whole bunch of quacks out there. But um, they do it right. And I know whenever I read anything with Stu writes, when I've spent time at Altus, I just come back like, wow, they've got it figured out. I remember the first time Steve and I gave a book talk on the way back in the airport, I just looked at Steve and I'm like, man, like there can't be anywhere better in the world to train if you're an athlete. Um, And I really mean that. So congratulations on what you've built and on what you're continuing to build. Yeah, I appreciate you guys. I appreciate you saying that, Brett, and I appreciate you two guys and what you've built over the last sort of decade or so, but more so how you've done it as well. I mean, it's uh, I really, truly wish there were more people out there like the two of you guys. You're you're doing it the right way, and uh, I appreciate you guys. All right. Well, thanks, Stu. We'll talk soon.